I feel a bit of a cop-out to have thrown all those numbers about health care at you, but it's my entree into saying, why don't you go to moneytalks.net? You can listen to a daily business comment uh, every workday or Monday to rather Monday to Friday. We've got, of course, Money Talks. You want to re-listen to anything on Money Talks, you can click right there. And on Wednesdays, I do a midweek report where I get interviewed on the topics of the week that I think are of importance. So, as I say, a lot of fast and furious numbers. Go to moneytalks.net and listen up. Right now, very pleased to welcome back to the show Don Vialo. Don, you can find at timingthemarket.ca. Don, appreciate you. Great timing on my part to have you on this week, given the kind of action we've seen in the market. Thanks for making time. Yes, thanks for having me back, uh, Michael. Well, let's start with, I mean, Monday morning, I was up, I was ready. You know, I, I had my tracksuit on because I knew something big was going on. Down a 1,000 points in the Dow in the first six minutes. I think it was 750 in the Toronto you know, uh, the rest of the week, other up to Friday, proved to be equally volatile. That big 600-point up move when we get to Thursday. You know, as a technical analyst, what do you make of all of that? Like, for example, we must have broken some significant numbers first thing Monday morning, and then maybe we retraced them by Thursday. So uh, how do you make sense of what we just witnessed? It's amazing, Michael, how history repeats itself. Uh, I think this is a one kind of event, but actually it hasn't been. Since 1945, we've had 14 consecutive events like we've seen uh, last week. Let me explain. Uh, on each one of those uh, previous events, uh, there was a major uh, anticipation going on, and that was anticipation of the Fed increasing its interest rates for the first time. And guess what's happening right now? That's what the market's anticipating, and it's creating a bit of a problem. In fact, in the last, since 1945, this has happened 13 times now, I guess now 14 times, and on average, the S&P 500 has gone down 10%. And guess what happened last week? Again, we've had this kind of a major drawdown. Since uh, the middle of July, we've seen the S&P 500 down 12.5%, the Dow down 15.3%, and the NASDAQ which is down, believe you believe, 18%. TSX composite since uh, mid-April is down 18.2%, so major corrections. But the interesting thing is when this correction happens, it happens not when the Fed increases its, its interest rate for the first time. It's the six-month period prior to the first increase in interest rates. Ironically, when the Fed does increase interest rates for the first time, markets go up. And so we probably have hit the low point for equity markets last week in the U.S. and Canada, and practically probably right around the world, very important low was reached by major equity indices, commodities, and sectors just last week. It's interesting uh, what you're saying, you know, because, of course, there's a lot of focus on China and their surprise devaluation going back, I guess, a couple of weeks now. Uh, and then, of course, I think that just brought the spotlight on a lot of suspicions that China's growth not, wasn't even reaching their 7% mark, which would have been the lowest in you know several decades. So the focus became on China. I, I personally think rightfully so when it came to commodities. I made that distinction. You know, I'm not optimistic on oil prices, and I want to get your view on, on uh, what the uh, sorry, seasonality is for that. Uh, 
but you know, just only recently have people sort of said, "Well, yeah, but it's also part of this Fed talk here." I'm wondering if if what we've seen is enough to scare the heck out of the Fed from raising rates. <laughs> we were just talking with uh, Michael, uh, sorry, Robert Lev, excuse me, Rob, and Rob was saying, you know, that's still on the table. Uh, they want to do it, but my goodness, I, I would have thought they're running scared now. It's interesting because uh, last week uh, the economists started changing their expectations slightly. They, uh, prior to that, ha- half of them expected the Fed to mm-hmm. move in uh, the month of September. Now more and more are moving to uh, December. Uh, my hope is that they actually do it in September, get this thing out of the way, and that'll set up the stage for a significant move on the upside for equity markets. Oh, interesting. Uh, let's get inside a lot of these things. And sorry, Donna, it's no in particular order, but I love it when we get a chance to chat with you and, and get some of the perspective from a seasonality point of view. Uh, let's start with the stock market. I mean, uh, and, you know, we can talk Toronto Stock Exchange or we can talk uh, Dow Jones. What's the seasonality? I mean, is this are we entering a period uh, of strength or is it the traditional uh, you know, kind of sell in May, come back uh, in October kind of thing? It is fascinating because normally the month of September is the weakest month of the year for equity markets, most sectors, and commodities. What's happened this year is the uh, week period happened three weeks earlier than expected. So we've actually uh, hit the lows for equity markets already. There are some technical indicators which uh, can give some background on that. One of the things I look at is the percentage of uh, stocks trading above their 50-day moving average. Now, how it works, whenever this uh, number gets down to below 20% and starts to recover, that's a buy signal. So let's look at what happened to both the Canadian market and the U.S. market last week. For the S&P 500, the percentage of stocks trading above their 50-day moving average fell to 4.6%. Lowest level we've seen in over four years. And then on Friday, it bounced back to 20%. For the TSX composite, it fell to 9.7% uh, last uh, Tuesday and recovered to 28% on Friday. Those are classic buy signals when they get below the 20% level and recover quite significantly. So the buy signal is in. We're into an intermediate upward trend, which will probably continue right through until at least the end of the year. Okay, so we look at that side, and then obviously it's, that's the broad market, and then we have to get into individual sides. And I, and I, I kind of already know the answer to this one, but I want to have it overlaid with your technical analysis. Is, uh, aren't we going to at least again move toward that seasonal strength for gold? Oh, we certainly did. In fact, gold uh, hit its low in the U.S. at $1,072 per ounce. And nice little bounce ever since about the third week in July. And that trend has continued. Gold is definitely in an upward trend right now. This is a disappointing part about gold is what's happening with gold equities. This time around, they have been underperforming gold. However, there are still some pretty good signs that gold equities will start playing catch-up. And in fact, just in late trading last week, we started seeing uh, gold equities, uh, say the XGD in, in Canada and the GDX in the United States, starting to show some pretty good movements on the upside. Uh, and again, what's the t- traditional sort of seasonal period of strength for gold? The traditional period for gold is from the, about the second week in July right through until the first week in, in August, in October, I should say. And same thing with gold equities. Uh, historically, the month of September is the strongest month for both gold and for gold equities. And it looks like it's going to do it again. 
Mm-hmm. And have you seen anything, uh, you know, you were mentioning just a moment ago about how the stock market may have shifted about three weeks forward, you know, in its seasonality. Anything to suggest that gold's moved or is it right on track kind of to match the regular kind of seasonal period? Pretty much on track. Uh, probably started a week or two late this year, uh, but pretty well uh, online and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, any kind of weakness like that you saw in gold equities, for example, last week was just another opportunity to accumulate uh, more gold equities. I'm talking with Don Vialo. He is Canada's foremost expert when it comes to seasonality and the mix of uh, especially the technical analysis, which you can find at timingthemarket.ca. Uh, Don, let me just, I'm, I'm, I know I'm just throwing stuff out at you, but I mean, you can imagine after a week like this, uh, you know, there's a few more gray hairs, especially as you came into Tuesday, and uh, maybe a little sigh of relief as you finished off yesterday, but different groups, of course, perform in different ways. And, and you know, the other big one is we saw a big recovery in oil, which I suspect was uh, a lot of short covering. People who had played oil to go down decided, hey, I'm going to take that bet off the table right now. Um, what about the seasonality of oil? It's a good question. I'll give you a slightly different uh, thought on, on the energy sector in general. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why I prefer the Canadian market, the Canadian equity market over the U.S. equity market right now. Because if you look at the sectors which are starting to show good performance relative to the S&P 500, it's gold, it's the energy sector, and it's the banks here in Canada. So looking at the energy sector, uh, on a seasonal basis, uh, crude oil actually starts to underperform as you get farther into September. On the other hand, natural gas starts to outperform starting next week. So watching the gassy stocks relative to the oily stocks in trading last week, it was the gassy stocks which started to outperform relative to the other stocks in the sector. So uh, don't think necessarily crude oil and what it's doing. Look at natural gas and the gassy stocks for potential upside but, uh, on the uh, performance during the next few months. Don Vialo, my guest, i got to take a break. There's so many more questions to go. He just mentioned the banks. i got to get a take on that with Don Vialo when we come back right across the Chorus Radio Network. I've got an excellent, shocking stat of the week uh, coming up shortly. Also, uh, my Goofy Awards this week, I said plural there, because there's a couple of examples that you want to know why cynicism toward government is on the rise well i've got two great examples that are just going to go my goodness gracious so that's my goofy award right now though don Vialo is with me timing the markets.ca what a incredible week of market action uh when you get the level of volatility first six minutes on monday morning in the dow down a thousand uh recovered uh I think to be off, this is off the top of my head, I think it was somewhere around four, five hundred, six hundred points down uh, on that. I'm getting the days mixed up, but then it opened up 400 points up on Tuesday, only to finish down 200 by the end of that day. But then we had the huge move, uh, you know, Thursday and Friday. So that's the kind of market we're operating in. We're kind of trying to distinguish between different groups who behave differently, of course, within the market. So, Don, uh, let me come back. You were just alluding to banks, and I just want to know what the seasonality is on banks. Yeah, just confirming what you're saying, Michael. Last week, uh, uh, on the ups and downs for the Dow, it was actually the Dow covered 10,000 points. So that's a huge <laughs> move. Looking at, looking at the banks, uh, their period of seasonal strength, actually there's two of them. 
There's one that's just coming in now, actually came in last week and continues right through, can continue right through until the first week in January. And so uh, we've just entered into the period of seasonal strength. And sure enough, the bank stocks uh, were very, very strong last week. And so is now an entry point? And probably the answer is yes on any kind of weakness. A word of caution, I was looking at ZEB, which is an equally weighted uh, ETF on the big, the big banks here in Canada. From its low point uh, early last week to where it closed on Friday, ZEB was up 12% in about four days. That's a huge move for bank stocks. So you may want to wait until you can catch these things on a little bit of weakness between now and then. But there's a reason why this happens. See, uh, this period of time encapsulates the uh, fourth quarter reports by the banks. And historically, uh, bank CEOs love to give you new good news when they release their fourth quarter results, usually around the end of November. So you have a period of anticipation, which is going to be positive, probably going to happen once again this year. Now, historically, one of the reasons for the anticipation has been an increase in dividends by the banks. That's probably not going to happen this time because quite a few of the banks announced dividend increases uh, just during the last few days. Yeah, but but even after that, you're you can anticipate some very good news coming from the banks as they report their fourth quarter results. Well, I've been you know one of my big recommendations, and again, we all have our our sort of scenarios. My scenario is you're not looking at any big move in interest rates. I see uh, the tax the taxation levels are far too high to get robust economic growth, along with many other factors. So interest rates sort of stay in that low range. So my big recommendation has been to find high quality stocks like like banks, or Canadian banks, I'm saying, uh, anytime they sort of drop enough to give you a 4.5% plus dividend, then you might want to jump on them. So, yeah, I was one of those guys uh, on Monday morning. I mean, they were on my watch list. That's where I was uh, kind of singling out with a couple of others looking for that sort of dividend return. So I'm happy to hear what you're saying. And, yeah, I was impressed by the recovery by the end of the week. Yeah, excellent strategy. Anytime these things start to yield around that 4% level, just an excellent opportunity to buy the banks going forward. Yeah, they actually have jumped up, Don, even higher, though. And then if you combine it with strategies like, uh, which I did, I did both. I bought the stock and then sold puts also, uh, you know, below the market. Then you take in the premium. If it gets put to you, you're at a much higher dividend rate. rate. And if it doesn't get put to you, you've just enhanced your yield anyways because you keep the premium. Uh, That's one of my favorite strategies uh, in kind of iffy markets on that kind of quality. But... uh, yeah, it's it. It was a, that's what the opportunity I thought. I'm I'm still not really comfortable though. I'll tell you, Don. I, and I said that. I said I kind of got lucky on Monday and wrote a little piece saying I think that's the interday low, low. And I said that during the day, but I'm still not comfortable. I kind of don't like this level of volatility. Yes, it was amazing. On uh, Monday, we saw the uh, the VIX go up to over fifty percent. That's the highest mm-hmm. level it's been since, I think, 2007. So a huge uh, upspike uh, in volatility. But it has come down. It's interesting to note that the VIX this week actually declined for the whole mm-hmm. week. Let me come to, uh, just because there's only a few minutes left, and just get, uh, do you have a couple of uh, groups that, you, that we're, you're saying uh, put that aside and we're into a period of seasonal strength for these groups, or a couple you say, regardless of the broader markets, we're in a period of seasonal weakness for a couple? Yeah, in this case, uh, I think uh, the period of seasonal weakness has actually come earlier than usual this year. So uh, don't be afraid to start uh, putting money into the markets uh, on any kind of weakness over the next few weeks. See, what's happened is the market broke down. All the major equity indices broke key support levels, I guess, about uh, 10 days ago. 
that created a lot of technical selling, which caused the, the meltdown on Monday. What's happening now is markets are starting to recover, and they're trying to recover back to the uh, previous trading range. But that implies, uh, for example, another 4% gain in the S&P 500 just to get back to the previous trading range. So there is still significant upside potential in the short term. But by definition, there is, the upside potential does become limited beyond that, say, in the month of September, because you have this huge overhead resistance that the market was going to have to move through. Eventually it will, because typically, you know, as you get into October, November, December, that's the period of seasonal strength for equity markets right around the world, will slowly but surely uh, eat into the overhead resistance and go into all-time highs. So we're not looking at, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't be surprised by more choppiness at, at the very least here, you know, the more volatility, but you're saying with an upward bias over, yeah. uh, like a, over a period of time. Yeah. Typically uh, during this time, after you've had a major uh, drawdown like we saw last week, is markets need to go through a base building period. And that's what likely will happen in the month of September. So that means that it'll be back and forth, uh, a little bit of upside potential, but uh, you know, basically uh, probably a flat trend through most of September before we launch into the period of seasonal strength into late October, November, and December. Um, we've only got about uh, 45 seconds left here, but was there a group or a couple of uh, groups that you kind of like, as we, uh, given the scenario we've just painted, that evolve into a, uh, you know, that we should sort of put on our radar screens now because it's their time? Yeah, just to, I mentioned a few uh, securities that might be of interest. Uh, I mentioned gassy stocks earlier. Just to give you a little package that might be of, of value. There's ARC Resources, there's Pato Resources, and Painted Pony. They're all gassy uh, scenarios. Mm-hmm. In the banks, just buy the basket. Uh, ZEB is a basket of the top six yeah. uh, Canadian banks. And when it comes to gold, I, again, I'm not a, a predictor of individual gold stocks. Just buy the XGD, which is a, a basket of uh, Canada's uh, and actually international gold stocks. As usual, Don, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you. I always love it. I love what the kind of stuff you do. Don Vilo, find him at time. Uh, sorry, timingthemarket.ca, timingthemarket.ca. Don, thanks so much for sharing your time. Thank you, Michael. I'll take a break. I'll come back. I've got a shocking stat, and i got Ozzy Jurek. Can you really buy real estate, that nothing down stuff you hear about? I'm going to ask Ozzy about that coming up shortly. I'm glad you're with us. Coming up, Ozzy Jurek, you've always heard about this, nothing down real estate. You know, it's a great come on. It's a way to sell incredible amounts of uh, sort of courses, how to take no money down on real estate. It's always a great promise. But is that real? Or is it a little bit uh, a BS? Well, I'm going to ask Ozzy Jurek specifically about that coming up in just about three, four minutes' time, so stay with me on that. Victor Adair is live from the trading desk. Boy, he probably had his busiest week in a while. Every week you can say, look at the gyrations, the volatility, because one of the things that we've made very clear on this show is that one of the safest bull markets to call and predict is the intensity and increase in volatility. Well, my goodness, this week was certainly all of that. Plus, I've got a goofy award for you. And a reminder, you want to hear more of what Don Vialo just said? Well, go to moneytalks.net. You can review anything you hear. The other thing I'd really love you to do is, and it's something I do all the time, is, you know, I take our dog for a walk or I go out, etc. Well, I'm really into podcasts of quality stuff. It's not that easy to find, by the way. At least for me, it's not. Uh, quality kind of broadcasts. Well, you get a guest like Don Vialo. 
you've got uh, the top three stories. You've got live from the trading desk. You've got uh, Aussie on stocks. You've got some quality stuff. And I would really encourage you, and I hope to heck you're getting, if you've got a son, a daughter, niece, nephew, grandchild, get them to start listening. Do it on the podcast. It's easy, totally convenient, anytime they want. But we have to, I'm telling you, in the environment we're facing right now, we have to get more serious about helping our children prepare for this educating our children and clearly the public school system is not interested the university system outside of specific disciplines is not interested well we're trying to help with that by getting you some of the best guests well i think they are the best guests anywhere i just get to choose who do i want to talk to this week and after being in the business that long i'm kind of lucky i get referrals sometimes or i'll phone someone in the analytical community and say can you make the uh, introduction for me and that seems to help but Use it at moneytalks.net. Plus, there's some great articles, by the way. Jim Rogers, famed investors. You go to moneytalks.net. He has changed his mind on a major, major investment thesis that he's been holding. Also, you've got Martin Armstrong there talking about, again, the escalation in his cycle of war, clearly predicted by him and his modeling, rather. Clearly, his models have been right on in that, and so many examples. I won't go into them, but, hey, his latest take, very interesting stuff. All of that on moneytalks.net. Time now for this week's shocking stat of the week. And let me start by saying I don't have permission from the progressive elites to mention climate change. Whoa, but I'm going to live on the edge and do it anyways. So I'm looking at this article this week. I'm reading it in the Climate Change Business Journal. And I see this number, and it absolutely blows me away. Climate change industry, the size. Oh, the Climate Change Business Journal estimates. Are you ready? That the size of the climate change industry is now one5 trillion dollars make that a little easier that's about four billion dollars a day is spent on the quest to change the climate now i mean you know there's so many different things you've got uh, what do you call that subsidies for electric cars you've got renewables biofuels you've got green buildings uh, of course the consulting industry is huge uh, environmental engineering on that specific aspect though climate change 1.5 trillion dollars Let me put that into perspective. That is as big as every single item bought over the Internet worldwide in a year. So any retail trade over the, you know, over the Internet, that's equal to it. $1.5 trillion. You want to know where the power is? You look at government subsidies. You look at uh, government lobbying for more money. Uh, The list is huge. I was just blown away. $1.5 trillion. I'm going to take a break. I'll come back. Is it really this whole no money down for real estate? Is it BS or is it real? I'll ask Ozzy Jurek in just two minutes' time right here on the Chorus Radio Network. I just sat here realizing I didn't get near enough trouble with that last shocking stat, so I better add to it right now. The environmental consulting industry an industry that in 1976 had billings of $600 million. Today, you know what it generates? $27B billion. Now that's a growth industry. You don't think there's heavy-duty lobbying on behalf of the climate change industry? How do you think you get these monstrous subsidies for companies like Tesla Motors? But that's a fascinating stat. You want to know where the power is? Look where the money is. $1.5 trillion. That's the Climate Change Business Journal saying that. 
the climate change industry, $1.5 trillion U.S. dollars. But I love that consulting thing because you're just saying lobbying. But environmental consulting industry has gone from $600 million in 1976, $27 billion today. Hmm. Let's move on now to our real estate report with Ozzy Jurek. You can find Ozzy at www.jurek.com. Hey, Ozzy, this has been on my mind for a while. I'm really glad, getting, uh, glad to get the chance, remember, to ask you about this stuff. You know, you turn on the TV, radio, etc. I mean, for years, we've been heard, hey, you can make money doing virtually nothing, especially you don't have to put any money down in the real estate market. Well, those have come really back on with a vengeance over the last, vengeance rather, the last couple of years. So, you know, come on, is that BS or is it real? Well, the thing is, quite often it's nonsense, Mike, because of of the assumption that the person uh, that is being uh, told to do that uh, has a has a level of sophistication. But but there are ways to buy with no money down. Some are easy. Some need to work. Uh, and some need some thinking out of the box. Well, just give me one or two examples of. Let's start with the easy ones. About okay, so I'm not putting any money down. So go. Well, of course, the, the silliest one would be go get a CMHC mortgage for 95% and then go, go see your dad for the rest. I mean, look, I see. Okay. If, yeah. if, if you're right now renting in, in Surrey, for instance, you pay 800, 900 a month, you can buy a $95,000 condo, 4500 down, that's $425 on your mortgage. So you add your strata fees and taxes, you're under $650. That's the deal, right? And it's no money down. But for investors, 20% of must be found because financial institutions will only take, uh, give you 80%. So you might get an owner to carry back the, the down payment. That usually works and maybe in, in, in tough areas. We know of a deal just this week in Calgary where the owner took back all of the down payment by way of a second mortgage. But he knew that the person working, uh, was working for him. So if you've got c- good credit and you know somebody, yeah. rent to own. You can actually, in the lower mainland, there's all sorts of lease to own and rent to own properties offered right now. You read it over carefully. You usually end up paying more rent than you normally would. And then the balance is added uh, together, say, over a three-year period and forms your down payment. That's possible. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing is this, Ozzy, is that there's always sort of that free lunch mentality, which is, come on, aren't we grown-ups here? We know there's no free lunch. So what you're talking about, and you're not suggesting that, by the way. I'm just saying the attractiveness of somebody standing up and saying, hey, just listen to me. I got a no-money-down kind of deal. Uh, You know, you don't have to put any money down. You control the real estate. Well, I think it just appeals to that kind of free lunch mentality. Uh, what, What about someone who wants to just use their credit card as an example? Well, that's that's what they say, you know. Increase your credit card to twenty-five thousand. We teach you how to do it, then buy my five thousand dollars course. But really, most yeah. banks are really uncomfortable with you doing it. There may be a small loophole because lenders want to see a three-month history. So, if you pull the card, uh, the money into the credit card, wait three months, then the bank might not know the difference. But the reality is, you then have to declare it into your debt servicing anyways. That would only work if you're already earning a lot of money, just don't have the down payment. Is there one that's sort of more popular than others when you sort of look at this kind of general approach? Well, I, what I really like is is the ones for also the bigger deal and, and also the smaller deal. Find a partner. Half a pie is better than no pie. You know, sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by creating a joint venture, there's a lot of dentists and doctors, lots of people out there that have money. I've never seen so much cash in individuals' hands. And they'd love to maybe do a joint venture with you if you're a quality individual and you have a good deal. Because usually the person with money has no time, and maybe you have the time but no money. And maybe together you buy it, you manage it, you do all the hard work, but in three years' time you split the profits. 
I remember there's a guy named Paul Simon, not Garfunkel's partner, but Paul Simon going back. God, you know, we might be talking 20 years. He was the first guy, as far as I know, to ever do one of those infomercials before we saw a lot of infomercials. He may have been one of the reasons you saw that industry uh, really get created. He did a, a late night kind of midnight thing on this kind of thing you just mentioned. He said he'll put the down payment down, basically, and then you assume you get to live in the house, but you assume all the other costs. And when right. you sell it, you split, you split, uh, you split the profit. Well, this thing went crazy, literally. I mean, he became a multimillionaire. But as I say, it was before you saw these kind of deals. And and then the next guy I ever saw was Tom Vu. Do you remember him? <laughs> yeah. He was on a he yacht a with a lot of beautiful women who didn't yeah. seem to know uh, own a T-shirt even. They uh, <laughs> they seemed to be stuck permanently in bikinis, regardless of the weather. And he used to sit there and go, yeah, "I'm Tom Vu. You know, I make yeah. you a lot of money." You know, but that—that's what it comes from. But a, a lot of them were were toward this end, where you get a partner, you know, and you create a joint venture partnership and go from there. Yeah. And you know, what's no the best advice you can give on this? Just very look, quickly. It goes goes with everything. The absolute key is a good deal. If you don't have a good deal, forget it. People always yeah. come to you, Ozzy, can you find me a million dollars? Yeah, I could, but what's the deal? Well, I don't have a deal, but I use the money to find it. Forget it. It's not going to happen. The money wants to see the good deal. And, Mike, that's hard. We sometimes make 10, 12, 15 offers before we find what we consider to be a good deal. So that's what I mean by taking out of the box and doing some hard work. You have to right. have a good deal. Well, speaking of potential good deals, you're not saying these are good deals. You're saying it's worth maybe a little more investigation. What about a hot property? Yeah, we got one in Powell River, four-bedroom in Westview. It's uh, it's rented to a long-term tenant who'd love to stay. They're asking $219,000. And then we have sort of a twist. Mac Marketing is offering live for free for a year on all one-bedroom homes in, in this new development in Burnaby at Red Brick. 5% down, moving now, no mortgage payments, no strata fees, no property taxes, and they start at 263. I thought if you want to have a year off and feel what it would be like not to have any mortgages, that might just be the ticket for you. <laughs> Great stuff. You can always find the details on the hot property button at juric.com. Ozzy, thanks so much for taking the time. We'll chat with you next week. Thanks for having me, Mike. Have a good good to, good to have you back on dry land, by the way. <laughs> I'll be talking more with Ozzy Jurek, of course. So much happening. And speaking of happening, Victor Adair is live, excuse me, live from the trading desk. Plus, I've got a goofy award. You've got to stay with us for that. There's been so much happening this week, been chronicling all day the incredible gyrations within the market. That's why I'm glad to clean up hitter today is Victor Adair, live from the trading desk. Vic, as I said, lots of action. I want to get what you took away from this thing. I mean, you're always talking about uh, the risk on, risk off. Boy, we got both this week in spades. Uh, you know, people are worried about liquidity, uh, talking about change. The list is a long one. Uh, well, you, you mentioned liquidity, and that's a, that's a really good place to start. I mean, we had huge swings in the market, but I'll tell you, first thing Monday morning, it was hard to find a buyer. Uh, you know, we, we have almost like an illusion of liquidity normally. When we go along, you own something, you phone your broker, sell it, it's done. But when you phone your broker and he says, geez, there's nobody there to buy it, it puts a different feeling in the pit of your stomach. You know, typically we'll measure liquidity as like the, the total volume of trade in a day, the depth of the market, the, the width of the bid offer spread, that sort of thing. But really, it's the willingness of somebody to step up and be the other side of your trade. When there's nobody there, then you go, oh, my God, you know, what have I just yeah. walked into? 
uh, and it's a reminder of something we've talked about, but I, I really, it's one of those things I just wish people would not just understand what we're saying, but take it to heart in their actions, and that is, my goodness, change happens quick once it starts. Well, <laughs> there's another way of looking at it, too. I mean, uh, let's say it this way. You know, big change seems to take forever to happen, and then bang, it happens really fast. You know, the U.S. stock market has been looking, to me, it's been looking toppy for several months now, but it just wouldn't break. And then Thursday of, of last week, you know, not just the, the past week here, but we had the Dow break down 2,000 points in three trading sessions. Like we've been just kind of meandering along, going nowhere, and then all of a sudden, bang, you know, fell into a manhole. Uh, I'll tell you something. There is nothing that makes capital move faster than fear. We definitely, you know, had some fear in the market here this week. And, you know, with fear, there's risk, the lack of liquidity. So, so what do you do? How do you prepare for that? You know, I think you just need to, if you can, need to understand exactly, you know, what it is you're trading, what your expectations are. And oftentimes, uh, those things don't really jive with the reality of the market or, or at least what's just below the surface. Let me just say a couple of quick things before you go. Um, were you active this week? Was I active? Was I yeah. trading? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I'd say this. On the show last week, I said I was happy to just be sitting on the sidelines in cash. And boy, was I ever as we came in on Monday morning. But, I mean, that kind of volatility created opportunity. We talked about that last week. And one of the things I saw was that when the, the American stock markets and stock markets around the world were down so sharply, suddenly here's the euro currency running to the upside. And I thought, what? What? That just didn't make any sense. Now, at the same time, because of all the emotion in the markets, the VIX, the volatility measures, had just exploded. So I was able to sell out-of-the-money calls on the euro at a huge premium, and a couple of days later, those things were practically worthless. So there was an opportunity there. It was something I was very familiar to trade with. I kept my size at a very manageable level. And, you know, I certainly had an exit plan if I was wrong on it. But, yeah, I was, I was active. And then on the other side, what didn't I do? I didn't touch the stock market all week. I'll tell you something. I could have gone in there and been a buyer or a seller and lost money. So I, I had no idea what was going to happen. Got about 30 seconds to tell me. Uh, you saw that big rally in crude oil. Uh, you know, West Texas crude is what we yeah. talk about all the time here. Big rally after 10 consecutive knocks. What do you think of that? Well, it was down for 10 weeks in a row, and then we rallied back 8 bucks. I'll tell you, I stay really close in touch with Joseph Schachter, and I like his calls in the market. Joseph is looking for us to make new lows in crude. I am thinking, okay, we've got to bounce here for whatever reason. Uh, I'll keep my eye on it, and if it starts to look weak, I'll probably go back on the short side of crude. Well, we'll have a chance to chat much more about that. In the meantime, Vic, uh, you, you deserve a rest after this week. Go, go, go and just sit down on the couch for a bit. <laughs> okay, Mike, have a great weekend. Victor Adair, of course, my thanks to Victor. Uh, my thanks to Robert Levy. My thanks to Don Vialo and Ozzy Jurek. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club, uh, if you're not aware of it, is a royalty-based investment. That means you're first in line to get the payout and there are no fees attached to this, and they do it within the tech field. So there's more details to get. You do it by going to soleraclub.com. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. I got a couple of wonderful cases of the old do as I say, certainly not as I do, by government employees and officials. Now, this is the kind of thing that is, I think, pushed cynicism about government to an all-time high. They're very understandable. Let me go to the first one. You know there's a drought in California. 
I think four months ago it was, that Governor Jerry Brown decreed that water use had to be dropped, had to drop by 25% by July. Well, they surpassed that goal, by the way. Great news. Their July water usage was 31% down. So that's a, a reason for celebration. But I'm reading this out of the Daily News. It reported that that was certainly no thanks to the L.A. County Board of Supervisors, whose service records revealed that they washed their take-home cars two to three times a week, despite the kind of water restrictions. But here's the thing. That's more often than before Governor Jerry Brown ordered the reduction in water use. Let's go to number two. Now, you heard, by the way, that the Greece uh, Prime Minister Alex Tsipras has resigned. They've got an interim prime minister there. Uh, they're going to new elections. Obviously, my point is the Greece crisis, Greek crisis isn't over. And it brought back a fascinating tidbit regarding the International Monetary Fund that still has the blood boiling for a lot of Greece, uh, Greeks. Christine Lagarde, she's the IMF head. Well, she continually chastised the Greeks for being a nation of tax cheats. She actually said, in quotes, all these people in Greece are trying to escape tax, end of quote. Well, the IMF is part of that big government thing around the world trying to get every last tax dollar available. So where's the problem? Did Madame Lagarde cheat on her taxes like some prominent French politicians? No, she doesn't have to. She makes 467,940 US dollar annual salary. Got that? 467,940 annual US salary. That's not all. She gets 83,760 of additional allowances that are entirely tax free. Tax free. Did you hear that? She's complaining about other people. She doesn't pay a cent on all she earns. As infamous New York socialite Leona Helmsley declared, as she was being led away by authorities for tax evasion, only the little people pay taxes. So, yeah, complain about the Greeks, but come on. She's sitting there with that kind of salary, over a half million bucks she's taken away, tax-free. Give me a break. That is more than goofy. Thanks for listening.